And just for the record, if you're looking for a biblical name for your child, don't ever name them Nimrod, right? I mean, what was this parent thinking? Nimrod? How many of you growing up, Nimrod was an insult? Anybody? Am I the only one in the world? Yeah, there was two names that we used to insult our friends with, Dipstick and Nimrod. So don't, no, don't name your two children Dipstick and Nimrod. Don't do it. It's wrong. All right. So, you know, you get a lot of good advice in church if you, if you show up here on a Sunday morning. Welcome to Church of the Rock from Winnipeg. Stay tuned to this week's thought-provoking message from Pastor Mark Hughes. My message is called The Tale of Two Cities. I'm going to take two weeks to get through this. I'm going to give you a lot of historical context for this. I'm not, a, of course, talking about Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities, which was London and Paris. I'm talking about St. Augustine's Tale of Two Cities, which was titled The City of God. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Augustine. He was canonized by the Catholic Church. He lived during the time of the Roman Empire. I want to show you a picture of the Roman Empire. Most of us are familiar because we read the Bible and uh, the New Testament's all about the Roman Empire. It was immense. It was hard to believe that this area that the Romans conquered from their headquarters in, in Rome, Italy, ended up covering Great, great, great Britain and Northern Africa and all of Europe and all of Asia Minor and, and, and the Middle East and into Egypt and Saudi Arabia. It was extraordinary to think that they were able in that day and age to conquer, and they ruled for some 500 years. And we've all seen those pictures and those images as we read the New Testament, so we know a lot about it. And so we have Augustine. Uh, he is living uh, at the tail end of the Roman Empire. And uh, he lived in the city of Hippo, which is in northern Africa, which is Algeria today. And uh, he was a professor at the university there. And if you go look him up online, they're going to refer to him as... Uh, Augustine of Hippo. Now, I'm not sure who would want the name Hippo in their name, but uh, he's stuck with it, right? I mean, I want you to meet my brother. This is Harry, you know, Harry the Hippo, and my, my other brother, R Randy the Rhino. Uh, you know, I mean, nobody, nobody wants those names in their moniker. But nevertheless, he, he, is, he is known as, as Augustine of Hippo. Now, here, here's a story. He was this brilliant Man, there's a great story, maybe I'll get to it in this series, maybe I won't, about how he got to where he was and how he became this incredibly learned uh, university professor. So the history of Rome is a little bit goes like this, uh, the Christian history. Some of you remember in AD 300, the Roman emperor, whose name was Constantine, was converted to Christ. Another fantastic story. So he becomes a Christian. They're slowly Christianizing the Roman Empire. By, by AD 395, they declare... Christianity, the state or the Roman religion, leaving behind all their pagan religion, all the Roman gods that many of you are familiar with. And so that's the birth of what we know as today as the Roman Catholic Church. And so that's in, in AD 395. Only 15 years later, AD 410, the Visigoths, the, the pagans, the barbarians from the north, invade Rome and sack the city and destroy the empire of Rome. Nobody thought this empire would ever come down. I mean, it was an extraordinary thing to think that these barbarians from the north would be able to crush the Romans, but that's exactly what happened. So 
once they did that, and they did it with great fanfare, they came in and raped the women and killed people and murdered people and, and uh, tortured people and burned things. And they were barbarians. You know, when you're a barbarian, you act like one, for goodness sakes, right? Live up to your name. And so, so they, made, they made this mess, big carnage everywhere. And then they started, the Goths started to spread this ideology that the reason they were able to defeat Rome, the reason Rome fell, because nobody could believe it, was because Rome had abandoned their pagan gods and embraced Christianity. You can read, go look it up. This is a true story. And that became widespread. And not only that, they mocked the Christians. And they said, where was your God when we were raping your wives and beating you up and killing your family? Where was your God? If your God was God, wouldn't he have showed up? Well, what happened is the Christians became obviously profoundly discouraged in the midst of that and began to question maybe their God wasn't real and where was their God in the midst of this. Now, this great intellect, uh, St. Augustine, decided he was going to write a rebuttal. And he sat down to pen to paper and he wrote a rebuttal. He started writing. It was ca he called it The City of God. And in fact, it wasn't one book. It was 22 books. And he wrote the 22-book rebuttal over a period of 13 years. It ended up becoming the most read piece of literature in the Middle Ages. It was this profound, it's just, I, I mean, it's, if you bought it today in a book form, it's two volumes. It would be about this thick. Or you can download it for free on the Internet. That's what I did. Uh, it's tough reading. It's heavy slugging. And it covers just about every subject under Christendom that you can possibly think of. And of course, it's brilliantly written. And today, he's generally regarded one of the greatest minds, Christian minds of, of all time. Now, the city of God is actually titled the city of God, but it's actually the tale of two cities. And his thesis, his main thesis, took him 20, 13 years to write this. I'm going to sum this all up for you in 20 minutes. Aren't you excited about that? And uh, that, that's how I t take the most complicated things in the world, dumb them right down, sum it up in 20 minutes. So here's, here, here goes. So he, he took this idea of the tale of two cities, and the tale of two cities was the city of man and the city of God. And the city of man, of course, was the kingdom of man, the kingdom of man makes on the earth. And this is a biblical concept, by the way. He didn't invent this. This is one of the biblical metaphors. The city of God is, of course, the kingdom of God, the kingdom from heaven. And again, it's a biblical concept. We're going to look at some verses about it today. And what he did was he uh, juxtaposed these two kingdoms like they do because we live in this dynamic tension between these two kingdoms. And most of you know enough about your theology to know that that's where we live. And though he comforted the Romans for all they suffered during the fall of Rome, he rebuked them for this one simple thought that I'm going to drive home today, that they had bought into the values of the Roman Empire, and they had put their hope in Rome and not in God. But the bigger and more important question, the question I'm asking today is this. How are we going to respond? And have we and will we put our hope in the city of man instead of the city of God? And it's an important question for us because we are so pulled into it, just like the Romans were. Now, let me, let me show you what the scripture says about this. Here's my text for today. It's Psalm 46, verse 4 to 7. It says this. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will 
help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah, which means pause and meditate on what I just said. And he says, there is a river whose streams make glad the, river, the city of God. The city of God is this elusive kingdom of God. When Jesus showed up on the earth, remember what he said? He said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, surely the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. And the thing that we are seeking after and looking after in life is the city of God, but we are living in the city of man. Now, let me tell, tell you a little bit of the history of cities here for a moment, because man has been preoccupied with building cities from the very beginning. And the very first city that was built was built by a man named Cain. You all know the story of Cain. Cain killed his brother. He was a pretty cool dude. He killed his brother and went off and built a city. So first city, I'm not sure who he built it with. Weren't too many people around, but he was building a city. So there you go. The next big city, it says that Nimrod was a mighty hunter, and he went out and built and founded a city, and that city's name was Babel. Well, we all know the story of that one, don't we? We were all familiar with that. And just for the record, if you're looking for a biblical name for your child, don't ever name them Nimrod, right? I mean, what was this parent thinking? Nimrod? How many of you growing up, Nimrod was an insult? Anybody? Am I the only one in the world? Yeah, there was two names that we used to insult our friends with, Dipstick and Nimrod. So don't, no, don't name your two children, Dipstick and Nimrod. Don't do it. It's wrong. All right. So, you know, you get a lot of good advice in church if you, if you show up here on a Sunday morning. So, so he, he builds this city, or he founds this city, and, of course, we know the history of this city. So it said the people were all, all one mind. They were all one language. They were all in one place. And they came up with this grand idea. It said, let us build a tower to the heavens, and make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad. And it says that God looked down on what they were doing, building this city. He says the people are all of, all of one mind and one language. Now nothing they determined to do will be withheld with them. Did you hear what he said? He said, they can't be stopped. They are of one mind. This is going to happen. So you all know the story. He came down, confounded their languages, gave them all different languages. They couldn't communicate, didn't, and he spread them out all over the world, and that's why we have all these different languages all over the world. At least that's the biblical story of this, right? And so a lot of people see, well, see, there you are. They, they tried to build this, this tower to heaven. Don't miss the imagery of this. Why were they building a tower to heaven? So that they could get to heaven, the heavens, without going God's way. They could do it man's way, and don't miss the fact they were making a name for themselves. There's a famous painting from the 16th century. Here it is here of the Tower of Babel. I doubt that's what it looked like, but it's sort of interesting to have this unfinished tower in your mind. If you go to Iraq where Babel was, uh, you can find this ziggurat that many people think that's the ruins. Uh, it would make sense right in the middle of a plain. Here's this something that's fallen down in that place. Whether that's the actual place or not, we know that it's a fact and true that they tried to do this. But here's my point. God said that they're all of one mind. They've set their mind to do this thing, to make a name for themselves, and nothing they determined to do will be withheld from them. God didn't actually, by confounding their language, God didn't actually stop them. All he did was postpone them. Because man has been building towers to the heavens ever since. If you go into a major city, anywhere in the world, what do you see in the downtown area? Skyscrapers and towers. If you go to Toronto, what will you see? The CN Tower. 
And, you know, here's the thing that's interesting about these towers. They, they, they go up into the heavens. They're extraordinary. It's true. They're testimony to man's uh, ingenuity. But they're also, they put names on the builder. It's called the CN Tower. It, the largest tower in the world is in the United Arab Emirates. Here it is. It's the Burj Tower. We've been to the Emirates. Uh, it's, it's really startling. It's hard to believe. You can see this when you're in the plane. You can see it for hundreds of miles away. It's so extraordinarily high. And just so you know, it is, in fact, named after the ruler of the Emirates. So that's what people do. Think Trump Tower. People build towers and name them after themselves. And man has, has not stopped in his determination to build the city of man. That's the, the point I'm making here. And so, anyway, that's a little bit of a snapshot of the history of cities. And the cities are, are really, this is what they are. And don't miss it. Cities are a testimony to the achievement of man. And they're, they're a symbol, they're a metaphor for what man can do without God. And I'm not saying they're, 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 cities are a terrible thing. If you ever have a chance to go to New York City, it's an extraordinary vacation. You'll stand at the bottom of the Empire State Building and you'll think to yourself, my God, how did these people ever build this thing 100 years ago? I mean, it's, it's amazing to think that. But what we're going to do in this is I, I want to drive a big, strong contrast between the city of God and the city of man. That was the whole point that uh, Augustine was making. And he was rebuking, and don't miss it, he was comforting them in, this, in these books. But he was also rebuking them for falling into the values of the city of man and putting their hope in the city of man. And he said, you know what, your hope is actually not in Rome. Your hope is about that. So the first and simple point that I, I want to make is, and it's, I'm only going to make the one today, you're going to like this, is this, is that in the city of God we live by much higher values. And you know, the scripture says that we are in the world, but we are not of the world, because Philippians 3 verse 20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. We are actually not citizens of planet Earth. Our citizenship is in heaven, and sometimes we forget that. And we live in this place, there's no question, but the scripture defines us and declares us specifically as strangers and pilgrims in the land. We are just passing through, and sometimes we forget about that, and we're holding on way too tight to the world. And one of the challenges for us, because we live in the world, we sometimes forget that we are mere sojourners that we are passing through our citizenship your passport really says something else it doesn't say Canada it says the kingdom of heaven and sometimes we forget that and we get so pulled into the kingdom of man or the city of man so I want to tell you a city story uh, about this to illustrate this so uh, some of you know probably most of you know that Kathy and I, when we vacation, particularly when it's cold, we like to go to Florida. Who doesn't like to go to Florida? You know what a Jewish uh, mama's favorite wine is? I want to go to Florida. That's what it is. And so, 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 you know, we go to Florida sometimes on our vacation. We've gone to the same place for, for many, many years in, in a row. And uh, the place we go, southwest Florida, is a place of very, very wealthy people. And these people live in mansions, and they have yachts, and they drive the fanciest cars you have ever seen. And I kind of love it. I'm a car guy. I don't own them or buy them. I just like to look at them and understand them and research them. And I love it because every day I see Rolls Royces and Bentleys and Lamborghinis and Ferraris and Aston Martins and every, any kind of car you can imagine. You see them going down the street every day, these beautiful, fantastic cars. And this place has these incredible famous people that live there. Shania Twain lives in this community, apparently has a house there. Eminem 
The rapper has a house. Now, I don't know where their homes are because I haven't been invited to any parties. <laughs> so I have, no, I have no idea where they live. Now, just for the record, we stay in a little one-bedroom apartment. We don't have a mansion or a yacht, just so you, you know. And we stay in this little apartment. And the real, th the real reason I go there is I like to play tennis in the winter outside, which I do. And I go to the tennis club, and I meet these crazy and interesting people some with money and some with reputation and some that are famous. I'll tell you, the last time I was there, I played tennis, and this is a true story, I played tennis with the U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, the one who was the charge d'affaires in uh, Afghanistan during the Afghanistan war. He oversaw the largest um, embassy in American history, a contingent of 8,500 people. He we, in our conversation, I'd love to, I'll tell you this story another day, but in our conversations, he knew presidents and prime ministers and leaders all over the world. I just felt like a fish out of water with this dude. Anyway, I played him tennis, and here's the beautiful thing about tennis. It is the great equalizer. Doesn't matter how much money you have, how famous you are, how important you are, you both strip down to your t-shirt and your shorts and you go out in a court and you know who wins? You know who wins? The better player, that's right. The better player wins. Unless, of course, you're the US ambassador and you can, have, you can get arrested and detained in Guantanamo Bay and they'll torture you and waterboard you. But that's a different story. It didn't happen to me. <laughs> but yes, I beat him. <laughs> I only played him once. And, and <laughs> but that's, he's not the guy I usually play with. When I do go down there, I have a guy that, I, that is more my speed in life. And he's a farmer from Iowa. And his name is Mike, and I love Mike, great guy. We have a lot in common, more than me and the ambassador. And so uh, I love to play with Mike. We're pretty evenly matched. And uh, Mike sold his farm in Iowa. I'm assuming he made quite a bit of money when he sold his farm because he moved to southwest Florida. And uh, now he's there all the time. And when I go down there, I, pl I play tennis with him. And I remember the first year he arrived after selling his farm, he showed up in a pickup truck. He's a farmer. That's what you drive. The next year. I go down on vacation, and he's driving an Audi Q7. Do you know what that is? A very snazzy SUV. The next year I show up, he's driving an Audi S8, a $100,000 car. Last time I go down, you ready for this? He's driving the one and only in all of southwest uh, Florida, which I happen to know, the one and only Audi RS e-tron GT. Here's the picture of it. Yes, that's me standing beside it. This car is an all-electric Audi car. It's 590 horsepower. It does 0 to 60 miles an hour in 2.9 seconds. It's a rocket ship. And he told me how much he paid for it. He paid 164,000 US dollars for it. That's over $200,000. And the fact that he was willing to let me, stinking sweaty from playing tennis, drive his car is a testimony to the fact that boys are still a farm boy. That's all he is. But, but when I got home, I was telling Kathy this story about this car. And I said, you know what? There's no way in God's green earth Mike would be buying this car if he lived in Iowa, driving through the farm roads. He's only buying this car, why? Because he has taken on, and I love this guy. I'm not criticizing him. But he's taken on the spirit of that city. When you have that kind of money, and I'm, and I'm just being honest with you, there's this tremendous pull on you 
When you are around the things, see, we're not actually jealous of the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musks and the Bill Gates. We get envious of the person who lives next door to us. And if he's driving a Rolls Royce and lives in a man mansion and has a yacht, that has a particular effect on us. And if you think you're not affected by this, I'm saying dream on. We're all affected by this. It's not a matter if we're going to be pulled into the kingdom of this world, the city, uh, a city of man. The question is, to what degree are we going to be pulled into it? And we find Abraham. Abraham decided he was going to live above that, which he did. And we find Jesus, which is such an incredible example for us. I know he was Jesus, but still. Did you ever notice how unencumbered he was by the world? He never got sucked in and pulled into any of this thing. And he always looked up to the kingdom in heaven and, and could care less about this world. Remember what he told his disciples? Oh, by the way, you know, birds have nests and foxes have holes. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So if you want to hang out with me, we have got nothing. And when he died, when Jesus died, what did he own to his name? His robe that they cast lots for. He didn't even have anything else to, to divide up. They had to cast lots for his robe. He left this world with Absolutely nothing. Now, none of us can live that way. I'm not criticizing any of you for your house you own or the car you drive, good for you. Uh, that's, that's not my point here. My point is we get so pulled into this. And you know, it's interesting what Augustine said to the Romans. He said, God wants to give you good things, but your hands are too full to receive them. What was he saying? He was saying, your hands are too full of the things of this world. And you're, you're struggling with that, and you can't get past that. And so every one of us has this propensity in this way. And so I want to sort of frame this in this last couple of minutes here in, in an important discussion that Augustine talked about, but also goes all the way back to Plato, and social scientists are still talking about it today. And it helps us understand what things in life are really valuable and what things they aren't, because we get confused about that. And the terminology, because if we're living in the city of God, this, our values are higher than the values of the city of man. But how do we determine what are, what are higher values? I mean, obviously, we know biblical things. We get that. But it's more important than that, and it's more nuanced than that. And so social scientists split it up this way. They call it intrinsic values and extrinsic values. And intrinsic values are things that don't really matter externally. They only matter internally. And extrinsic, as the word might, you know, denote, denote, have to do with things that have external value. And it's not, it doesn't mean they're not important. And here's a beautiful way to illustrate it. I'm going to throw it up on the screen. Same thing. So you love to play the piano. And if you love to play the piano and you just play it at home for yourself, nobody else is around, and you're getting enjoyment from that, and you're doing it for no other reason than the fact that you love to play the piano, that is an intrinsic reason to do it. Now, on the other hand, if you play the piano because your parents made you, or you're trying to impress somebody else, maybe impress a woman or something, or maybe you can't stand playing the piano, but you need to pay the rent somehow, so you go down to some stinky club and you do it. That's an extrinsic reason, and you're doing it to get something further down the line out of it. And it's not really, you're not doing it intrinsically, you're doing it extrinsically for some other reason. Now, don't misunderstand this. Not all extrinsic reasons are wrong. Uh, some of you go to work for the extrinsic reason that you'll get paid, right? Uh, you know, if you go for a colonoscopy, there's no intrinsic reason to do that. <laughs> you, you, were, you were subjecting to yourself to a great indignity for, for the benefit of the fact that maybe they'll diagnose cancer and you won't die from it in two years. And so, you know, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. 
But here's what we've discovered. We have a world that is completely preoccupied with extrinsic things, things that are external. And we, they learn right from the very earliest age, our culture is so bombarded by this. They tell us that the average four-year-old, by the time he's four years old, uh, actually can identify a hundred name brands of products. They say that at, by four years old, uh, almost any kid in the entire world can say the word McDonald's, uh, where the restaurant, the McDonald's fast food, before they can say their own last name. And there's something wrong with this picture, and they've been bombarded with this, all these imageries, and, they, and they've been told what's really valuable in life is a bunch of things that aren't valuable in life. And so they start off to school, and they have to have the latest iPhone and the latest clothes and the latest you know, video box of some sort. You're, they have to wear Nike basketball shoes, even though 99.9% .9 of them don't play basketball. Therefore, there's no intrinsic reason to own those shoes. The reason you own that, those shoes is so someone else will see you wearing those shoes. It's important for your image and you're not going to fit in. These poor kids are being trapped in this world. And what kind of adults are they going to turn into? Well, I'll tell you what kind of adults they're going to turn into. They've been looking at these concerts. You, you've seen, I don't know if, how many of you have been to a concert or seen a concert recently. People don't just go and watch a concert and stand there and listen and sway to the music anymore. They all go and hold their cell phone up and take videos of it. Have you seen these pictures? Do you know what I'm talking about? You, you can't go. So they all go to the Justin Bieber concert. They're finally seeing Justin Bieber in concert. And every single kid has got a cell phone up and he's videotaping it. Are you following this? Instead of enjoying the concert and the moment they're in at the time, they're videotaping it so they can post it on Instagram or TikTok and say, see, I was at the Justin Bieber concert. You know what? Nobody wants to watch your stupid video. Your stupid video is going to be super crappy. And there's a million other better videos out there. You're not even going to watch it. <laughs> it's funny you're cheering about that. Do you know that a few weeks ago, Adele interrupted her concert and said, would you people put away your cell phones? I'm here. I'm right here. Just watch the concert instead of trying to videotape it. And she bawled them out. She was kind of mad at them. And so the, the point I'm making is this. We get so caught up in this thing, and this is why we get pulled into the, the city of man, the kingdom of the, of, the, of the world, the things of this world. They all draw us in, and we just have to ask ourselves our question. Is that where we really want to live? Do we want to live with the values? Like I said, God has things to give you, but he can't give them to you because your hands are so full. And it's time for us to try as best we can to let go of this world. You say, how do I do that? How do I let go of things of this world? How do I find those things that are intrinsic? And I'll tell you how you do it. You start just making an inventory and start thinking about, what are the things that really bring me joy? What are the things that bring me fulfillment in life? And if you could start to isolate those things and do more of them, you'd be amazed at what that will do to your quality of life. And they did 22 studies on depression and 14 studies on anxiety. And they found that in every single case, people who were depressed or full of anxiety were preoccupied with extrinsic things in their life. And when people get focused on the internal things, on the intrinsic things, and I understand that you've got to go to a job and you have to work and you have to make a living. I understand what that means. But here's my advice to you. You do that for a season. And if you really hate your job and you can't learn to love your job, you know what you should do? You should get a new job. You should do something. You're only going to work once. You've got 40 years of working life. Find something you love to do. And here's 
why I think church is so important and faith life is so important. Everything we do is intrinsic. I mean, when you come here, one of the greatest things that we do in the church, whether you like it or not, <laughs> is worship. I mean, worship, you know, you don't do worship for someone else. You don't do worship to impress anybody else. Do you know you don't come to church to sing in church hoping someone else will hear you? You hope they don't hear you. I've heard you sing. You don't want them to hear you. When you come to church and you worship God, you're not going to get paid for it. We might pay you to stop singing, but we're not going to pay you to sing in church. Why are we here? There is something about the congregation of the saints when we come together. I am looking away from the world, the city of man, and I'm looking to the city of God. I'm looking to the coming kingdom and the coming king, and I will worship him and put all of this mess of the world behind me for those few moments. That's the city of God. Jesus says, what did a prophet, a man, if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? There is nothing like this relationship with the living God, this intrinsic reason or intrinsic value that we can come to him and we can remember, ah, it's nice to have a home and it's nice to have a car and it's great to have a job and all those things. But at the end of the day, there's only one thing that matters and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has saved us. And as Augustine said, he wants to give us good things, but our hands are too full to receive them and it's time for us to let go a little bit of this world so we can lay a hold a little bit of God and a little bit of the kingdom of heaven and a little bit of the city of God and we will be full because there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God let's stand together if you'd like a booklet to help you understand more about God's gift of forgiveness and reconciliation through Jesus Christ, please contact us and we'd be happy to send you a free copy of the Book of Hope. Visit our website at www.churchoftherock.ca Thank you for watching and God bless you.